Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into today's episode, we're hoping you might give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, we'll talk about one of the most intractable problems in Ontario today, the need to create more housing without ruining the environment while we're at it. A Liberal MPP makes it official. She's quitting Queen's Park to run for Toronto mayor. And that may move some other pieces on the political chessboard as well. And how in the dark would you like to be in the lead up to Election Day? One official's quest to ban the publication of polling two weeks before E-Day. It's April 11th, 2023, so let's get to it. JMM, how the heck are you, buddy? Oh, I'm enjoying this weather, I'll L- tell you that. Living the dream? Living it's 25 degrees outside. Yeah, it's glorious. Yeah. I'm going to go find a patio or something. <laughs> Do you notice in Canada we go right from winter to summer? We kind of skip spring altogether? I wore shorts on my bike today. <laughs> No kidding, did you? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of glad I didn't see that. You know, it's not for everybody, I confess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe a little word of explanation just off the top here. Normally, this podcast is in your feed first thing on a Tuesday morning, but we're coming to you a little later in the day than normal this week because of the Easter holiday weekend. But fret not, we're now good to go with our weekly update of all things Queen's Park. Just a reminder, you can email us at onpolitics at tvo.org if you have any questions or comments. This week, we got an email from a listener named Andrew. Indeed. And here's what Andrew writes. He says, hey, Steve and John Michael, from the Toronto Star, this quote, Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey has called on the federal government to help by deferring the harmonized sales tax on new large scale purpose built rental housing projects. Question, is there any technical reason why the province would need the federal government's permission to defer or rebate the provincial portion of the HST on newly built rental? Did Ontario give up control of its share of the former provincial sales tax by harmonizing? Okay, thanks for that, Andrew. Good questions. Just before John Michael answers this, I guess we should remind everyone that before the Stephen Harper federal government and the Dalton McGuinty provincial government harmonized the two sales taxes, the feds had the GST, the goods and services tax, and they administered that one. And the province had the RST, the retail sales tax, which was only on goods, not services as well, and the province administered that one. And then in the middle 2000s, the governments harmonized those two taxes to create the HST, the harmonized sales tax, which really simplified matters for businesses. They only had to do one set of books now instead of two. And in exchange for harmonizing that tax, the province gave up a certain amount of power on tax policy. And that takes us to JMM's answer on whether Ontario could unilaterally take the provincial portion of the HST off of products and services related to building rental properties in order to encourage more construction of that. So what's the answer? So I'm going to step back a second and, you know, just ask people to imagine what problem the HST solves. Uh, When Ontario had its own provincial sales tax, the government had to administer that tax, as you said. And that takes time and and energy and and labor power, you know, people employed by the Ministry of Finance. Um, And you've got to spend money to make money, even if you're in government. With the HST, the feds administer the tax and they collect Ontario's share at the same time as they collect their share and then they just remit 
Ontario's share to the provincial treasury. The catch is that, as Andrew sort of alluded to, Ontario does give up some flexibility in its own tax policy. The feds largely control the categories that the HST does and doesn't apply to, and they totally control the actual administration of the tax. Now, that's not a deal breaker when Ontario wants to change the application of the provincial share of the HST. Uh, You know, for example, a few years back, Ontario started rebating the HST on people's electricity bills. Uh, The sky didn't fall. They figured out a way to make that work within the HST system. Now, in terms of what Ontario can do with rental housing, there's actually already a substantial rebate for the provincial share of the HST that is collected when someone wants to build uh, rental housing. Builders can theoretically recover 75% of their HST costs from the province. So, you know, I was tempted to just end this answer there, uh, you know, because that's the answer to Andrew's question. No, there is no reason uh, why the province can't do that. And in fact, uh, they do. But I think our listeners might uh, appreciate a bit more uh, expansion on this answer. Or or you will certainly appreciate giving it to them anyway. Yeah, nobody asks. I just keep talking. Um, Pity my wife. Um, So, that's uh, 75% of the 8% that a builder will pay in HST costs. And in case people are sort of curious about what this would apply to. I mean, when you're building a big apartment building, you have to buy a lot of stuff, right? Concrete, nails, <laughs> wiring, and, and buying all of that stuff uh, includes a lot of HST costs. And uh, in theory, this provincial rebate uh, could pay back uh, 75% of those HST costs, but it is capped at a certain dollar figure per uh, unit of housing built. Uh, if the province wanted to, they could be more generous uh, on that front. But, uh, you know, it's already a pretty substantial rebate, so I think there's a fair question about whether that would be the most efficient way to do it. That you know, how much more uh, good could a, a rebate do? What the province is actually asking for from the federal government is something slightly different. It's not so much about how much builders pay in uh, taxes in HST, but when they have to pay it. The province is asking for the feds to let builders defer their HST payments for some period of time. Uh, the the industry would talk about you know five years, three years, ten years, any time window uh, you can imagine, they would like to see some kind of deferral. And the reason is simply that a a rental building, particularly a very large rental building, doesn't really start making money for the builder until it's had paying tenants uh, for several years. So the industry would say, like, if you let us defer these HST payments into the future, that makes it a much more attractive investment when we have to go to banks and other investors uh, to to beg them for their money. And this is really where we get to the core of Andrew's question. You know, this isn't about tax rates or tax rebates. It's really about the core administration of the tax. And that is something that Ontario did give up control over when it adopted the HST. It really needs the federal government to make uh, that decision. And it it would have an implication for uh, provincial uh, tax revenues. It would also have an implication for federal tax revenues. And of course, any changes uh, that, uh, you know, the government would make would affect both uh, Ontario's bottom line and uh, if it were applied to the HST, uh, it would affect Canada's bottom line as well. So if Ontario asks the feds to do this, the feds presumably would want to know 
Well, before I say yes, I need to know how much this is going to cost. Any sense of how much it would cost the federal coffers to do this? Well, it really does depend on what kind of a change we're talking about. In theory, simply deferring a tax doesn't cost the government a lot of money because they do eventually get their revenue. It just comes with a delay. Uh, It it won't shock you to learn that rental builders would love even more generous tax treatment. And, uh, you know, for example, one idea might be simply zeroing out the HST costs that they have to pay on uh, new construction. Uh, the argument for this uh, is that uh, when you pay rent as a tenant, that uh, does not include HST. And so uh, since their income does not include HST, the builders would say that their costs should also not include HST. That's a whole other argument. But in any case, uh, the estimated cost of doing that, uh, I've seen estimates anywhere from $500 million to more than a billion dollars a year. Okay, there you have it, Andrew. Again, if you'd like to ask us anything about the show, please email us at onpoliticsattvo.org, and we can promise that Mr. McGrath will give you a very, very, very complete answer to your question, and maybe some answers to questions you don't even ask. Kidding, JMM. I love that. That was all great. All good stuff. Now, on to issue one. That we're in the budget, but uh, you know we want to build upon the success. The the fact that we had a an all time high in purpose built rental construction in 2022 is a success. Last week, the province unveiled a new bill called the Helping Homebuyers Protecting Tenants Act. It's all part of the plan to create 1.5 million new homes for a very fast growing province. JMM, what's the particular mission of this particular bill? As our listeners are probably getting tired of hearing, the government wants to get 1.5 million new homes built in Ontario by 2031. They are falling behind on that goal because the numbers are really daunting, but this bill is their latest attempt to get more homes built in more places. Uh, It's worth saying that the big announcement on Thursday wasn't just a new piece of legislation. It's also a bunch of more detailed policy announcements that, frankly, might actually be more notable than the bill itself. Okay, let's get into some of the nitty gritty of all this and let's start with the bill. What's in there? Uh, This makes uh, a bunch of amendments to both the Residential Tenancies Act and uh, the City of Toronto Act and the Municipal Act and the Planning Act. So a bunch of different laws are affected. And uh, broadly speaking, uh, there's some good news for renters in there. Uh, Maybe as we head into the warmer months, maybe the most immediate one is that uh, the province is going to guarantee a right of tenants to be allowed to install uh, window unit air conditioners. Uh, Currently in Ontario law, uh, landlords can prohibit Uh, tenants from installing uh, air conditioners because some landlords uh, are not able to charge their tenants for uh, electricity. And so there's a a question of fairness there. Uh, The province is going to let landlords apply a seasonal surcharge to rent if the tenant doesn't uh, pay for the electricity. Uh, the province is also uh, increasing fines for uh, so-called bad faith evictions, so uh, another uh, good news item for uh, tenants. More complicated news, maybe it might end up being bad news, it might be good news. Uh, the province is going to start making rules requiring developers to replace any rental units that they demolish when they build a new rental structure. This is important because the rules already exist in some municipalities, and the provincial rules would over 
overrule the municipal ones. Uh, one point the government has made a few times when reporters have asked about this is that they want to protect the core features of an apartment unit, but not necessarily every detail about it. <laughs> to translate this from governmentees, it looks like the province would let a developer replace a two-bedroom apartment with another two-bedroom apartment, but that replacement unit might end up being smaller in terms of square feet, and it, it might not have uh, all of the same uh, features and amenities uh, that the previous unit did. Got to read the fine print, don't you? Absolutely, you got to read the yes. fine print. Uh, governments uh, love to drop stuff on reporters uh, Friday, 5 o'clock on a holiday weekend. Did, yes. they, did they do a little holiday weekend drop on us this time? There was a pretty substantial drop of uh, changes in the planning rules in this province. And uh, people know that I'm a big geek for planning rules. And um, I'm trying to think of how to... to describe this that won't put all of our listeners to sleep, but maybe they'll be listening later in the day and, and could use a nap. Um, for a very long time, we had two documents in Ontario that really uh, set the rules for towns and cities around the province. One was really focused on uh, the region of the GTA and uh, the broad region around it. Uh, it was called the Growth Plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe. And then there was a, a broader province-wide document, uh, both set rules for like where cities are allowed to approve new housing, where they are not allowed to permit new housing, uh, you know, where they are uh, allowed to have quarries for rocks and cement and, and concrete and these kinds of things. The province is getting rid of the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe, and they are consolidating these two documents into one. This is like really arcane bureaucratic detail, but the important point is that not every policy from the growth plan is being carried forward into the provincial policy statement. Mm. So, uh, for example, there are going to be fewer protections for farmland. There are going to be uh, rules that allow municipalities to uh, map their own agricultural areas instead of being forced to use provincial maps. Uh, this is a particular uh, issue in the Niagara region and southwestern Ontario. Ontario, there's been a lot of uh, conflict over uh, whether housing would be allowed in areas where the province says, no, no, these are specifically agricultural areas. Uh, at the same time, municipalities are also being uh, required to plan for a lot more growth in population uh, over a longer timeline. So you can uh, see that the government is definitely pushing uh, more housing to get built, and uh, they, they are looking at you know some pretty big immigration numbers coming over the next few years, and and they are definitely trying to to push uh, how push municipalities rather uh, to build as much housing as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also this provision of the bill: the province will relax rules on municipal settlement boundaries, allowing councils to provide, quote, more land where it's needed for housing. Okay, so you're, you're the guy who translates government ease. So what does all that mean? At the moment, towns and cities in Ontario are required to set settlement boundaries in their official plans. And these are uh, key municipal documents that guide planning decisions. Basically, we've already talked about the growth plan and the provincial policy statement. Then cities' official plans are supposed to be uh, uh, in conformity, or they're supposed to comply with the provincial policy statement, and then from there, your zoning rules are supposed to comply with the official plans. And in theory, this is all supposed to work seamlessly together. In practice, it rarely does. But uh, 
uh, a settlement boundary just is is a line on a map that says you can build a bunch of new homes on one side, but not on the other. And the province has a say in these maps because these are part of uh, municipal official plans. And uh, the government has actually already used their powers to push municipal plans into larger expansions of settlement boundaries than even some local councils wanted. Uh, and here we have to do the obligatory mention of Hamilton. All praise to Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but that did happen there, didn't it? Yes, it did. So at the moment, the, though, these, this process for adjusting the municipal boundaries uh, only happens about every five years or so when a city does what's called a comprehensive review of its official plan. The province is now saying that they will allow boundary revisions more often and more easily. Yeah, the city very much wanted to keep the future development within a confined space. And um, apparently the province thought, no, we're going to go for a bigger space. And guess who won? Well, exactly. And and the province, you know, believes that the uh, Hamilton plan would not have accommodated as much growth. They wanted to see uh, more land brought in to bring in more homes and more affordable homes. That is, of course, a very contested <laughs> question right now. Now, because you brought that up, I have to do the full disclosure thing here, which is my brother's a property builder in Hamilton. He builds homes in the Hamilton area and... Uh, Frankly, I don't know whether that change about the inner or outer boundary affects him, but uh, I guess somebody will find out and let me know. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, When governments tackle these kinds of issues, they often try to strike a balance between the rights of landlords and tenants or home builders and home buyers. But, of course, depending on their ideological bent, they usually do end up favoring one group over another. Now, I noticed this bill continues an increasingly Orwellian tradition by governments of saying how wonderful it is in the title. This bill is called Helping Homebuyers Protecting Tenants. I'm a little surprised that Loving Big Brother isn't in the title as well. Have you been able to determine which groups are actually favored in this bill? Well, there are legitimately some good policies in there for renters. And, uh, you know, I I did sort of allude to this, but I think one big question going forward will be whether the increased fines for uh, bad faith evictions and easier access to air conditioning, uh, whether those good things will outweigh the possible chaos of developers being more easily able to demolish uh, rental units. I think it's fair to say, though, that the big, big winners in these changes are going to be rural landowners on the uh, periphery of Ontario's big cities. Uh, These changes are going to make it uh, much easier for development to sprawl into areas that uh, it hasn't yet. I think we've covered the housing thing. We've really, I think, gone the full... Monty. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In which case, on to issue two. This will likely be one of my last questions in this chamber. And after four elections and 10 years serving as the member for Scarborough Guildwood, I will be resigning my seat in the coming weeks. The Ontario Liberals are on the verge of losing one of their eight MPPs as Scarborough Guildwood's Mitzi Hunter has announced she will quit her seat to go all in on her bid to be the next mayor of Toronto. And that has prompted one of the contestants for the Ontario Liberal leadership to muse aloud about running for Hunter's vacant seat once the by-election is called. Yes, that's right. Uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who is the MP for Beaches East York, is seeking the Ontario Liberal leadership. And as a result, uh, he figures he'll need a seat at Queen's Park at some point soon. Uh, When he's been asked about this, he has said, you know, he he thinks it's important to contest the uh, first winnable seat that uh, a a Liberal leader could uh, potentially get into. And now he's not even the leader yet. <laughs> and he is uh, talking about uh, running in the Scarborough Guildwood by-election whenever that ends up uh, being called. 
just a reminder for our listeners, of course, that the timing of a by-election is up to the lieutenant governor in council, which is a fancy way of saying that the premier will call that by-election when he's good and ready. (laughs) Correct. Erskine Smith has represented Beaches East York federally since 2015. Now, normally, if you were going to make a move to provincial politics, you'd first check to see whether you could contest the same seat provincially, because in almost all the cases, the riding boundaries are the same. In this case, that's not an option, because the Liberals already hold Beaches East York provincially. Mary Margaret McMahon is there. So Erskine Smith will have to look further afield. Hunter's riding is just east of Erskine Smith's riding. They're not that far away from each other. But as you might imagine, there will be local people in Scarborough who would want to contest that riding as well. So it's no slam dunk to say that if Erskine Smith wants it, he'll get it. No, though, I mean, if he does win the nomination, it is a seat that has been very reliably liberal. And, yes. I mean, Hunter held that seat in the 2018, um, I don't know, do we call it a bloodbath? Well, uh, it was because she only won it by what, 54 votes right, or something it was, like it was that? A very narrow hold, but hey... It was a win. It was a win. A win is a win is a win. (laughs) Um, Another issue is, of course, the timing of the by-election. We mentioned this earlier, but uh, there's not only the now likely by-election in Scarborough-Guildwood, but we also have uh, Marilee Fullerton's recent departure from uh, the Progressive Conservative uh, Party and from her seat. There will need to be a by-election in uh, the riding of Kanata Carlton. And then there will also have to be a by-election to replace Laura May Lindo in Kitchener Center. Uh, She announced her departure from provincial politics earlier this year. We had her on the podcast to discuss that. You know, it would be normal practice to schedule these by-elections all at the same time, possibly in the late summer before MPPs return for the fall sitting of the legislature. Uh, But the premier has up to six months to call a by-election once the uh, vacancy is formalized. Uh, One additional note, it does look as if Yasser Nakvi, uh, who is another prospective uh, liberal leadership candidate and is currently the MP for Ottawa Centre, he will not contest Kanata Carleton in the ensuing by-election. That's a very safe Tory seat, so his chances of prevailing there would not be very good. Uh, So he is going to stay put in his federal seat right now. Of course, if he wins uh, the Liberal leadership and does want to return to Queen's Park, uh, you know, one option for him is just to stay in Ottawa and wait for the general election. His provincial Ottawa Centre seat is currently held by the NDP, by Joel Harden, so he could wait for the election and run for his old seat, uh, the same one that he currently holds federally during the next provincial election. You know, it it does get at something that I think you're going to see debated among liberals uh, in their coming leadership race is actually how important is it for the leader to have a seat in the legislature at all? Yeah, I've been thinking about that and asked around about it. And I got to say, most of what comes back to me is that most people don't think it's very important at all right now. And uh, I take them at their word on this because because we have to remember the Liberals are not an officially constituted party at Queen's Park because they don't have the minimum 12 seats for that. So they don't get a regular rotation during question period. They don't get extra money to hire staff to do extra research. In fact, you could argue the interim leader, John Fraser, is doing just fine holding down the fort during routine proceedings at the ledge so that whoever becomes the next leader will be able to get out and around the province and beat the bushes. And (laughs) again, the new leader has a huge task ahead of him or herself. They've got to find 117 candidates for the next election. That's a lot. 
Uh, he or she will also be responsible for raising money, creating a policy development process, etc. Lots to do. So sitting through question period while the PCs and NDP, the official opposition, dominate that setting is not necessarily the best or most efficient way to get any of that stuff done. With Stephen Del Duca, he also did not have a seat in the legislature. He led the party. Obviously, the 2022 election did not go the way that he or the Liberal Party wanted. But of all the things that went wrong for the party uh, that year, I, I don't think that Del Duca's absence from question period was that important. There were, there were lots of other things that went wrong. I, I could see a, an argument that the leader just doesn't frankly need to be there that often. <laughs> and frankly, I've, I've heard the same argument from the NDP, even though they are uh, an official party and the only other official party aside from the, the PCs. Uh, Marit Stiles may not spend a ton of time around Queen's Park either for the next few years. I can guarantee you she is being advised daily not to. Yes. <laughs> okay, on to issue three. The big news this week was a new poll. It showed the Tories gaining a bit of ground on the Liberals. Plus some new polling numbers, all of which give a detailed picture of where Ontarians are today. But a poll casts its shadow over a possible spring election. We are a society seemingly obsessed by polling numbers, particularly during election campaigns. Once those polls are published or broadcast, it often means that the outcome of the contest is no longer in doubt. So the chief electoral officer for Ontario suggested last week in a report that he would prefer to see a ban on publishing or broadcasting poll results in the last two weeks leading up to Election Day in future provincial election campaigns. Now, this is an idea that's been kicked around for a long time. It has some considerable upside and downside to it, but I, I noticed in a column penned by the estimable Mr. McGrath last week that I think the technical term you used, uh, John Michael, was to call the idea nuts. <laughs> so get off the fence and tell us why you oppose this idea. Well, first of all, it is almost certainly unconstitutional, and I feel like that We'll just put that right in the spotlight uh, to start. Uh, you know, the federal parliament tried to pass a polling blackout law back in the 1990s, and the Supreme Court of Canada said it breached the charter's free expression guarantees, because what you're talking about is a law telling media what they can and cannot say, and when they can say it. Uh, the court's members have changed since then, so maybe a provincial law would face a different fate, but I think your baseline assumption has to be that it would not be allowed. But if you read the political science on the effects of polling, it's actually hard to find any kind of really strong consensus on what the effects are, what direction the effects push in, and how strong they might be. So we've got very ambiguous evidence trying to justify a law that, again, I want to emphasize, is probably unconstitutional. Um, and finally, I, I think in an era when lots of people, uh, for very bad reasons, want to delegitimize the outcome of elections when they don't like the results, having a large body of public opinion polls prior to voting day is actually solid evidence that our our elections aren't being messed with. You may not have loved the results of the 2022 election, but it was about what the polls said it was going to be. And that's how I'm pretty confident that Doug Ford is not secretly stuffing ballot boxes somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, I'm of two minds on this. I, I take all of your points at face value, obviously. Uh, part of me really loves the idea. I really wonder how many people check out of election campaigns because with all the reporting on polling in the dying days of the campaign... There is very little suspense about who's going to win, and I suspect that does depress voter turnout. I have no doubt that the Tories' significant lead in the polls in the last election last June 
prompted many people to say, well, Ford's going to win, so I'm not going to bother voting. And, you know, that's why turnout was 43 percent, a historic low. So the idea of a little suspense in the dying days of a campaign holds a lot of appeal. And if you genuinely didn't know who was in the lead, might it prompt more people to go out and vote to ensure they didn't get a result they didn't want? It might. However, in this day and age, you're right. I just don't see any way to enforce this. It's very contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms telling media what they can and can't publish. I don't know how you would do that. Furthermore, the candidates would know the results of the polls. Their campaign managers would know the results of the polls. The media would find out but would be legally prohibited from sharing that information. That also sounds very problematic. So (laughs) what do I say? I love the idea. I just don't see how you can do it. Aside from all that, it's a great idea. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) All right. That is the On Poly podcast for this April 11th, 2023. Better late than not at all. We hope you're thinking to yourselves right now. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to them at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on the situation at Ontario Place and how some candidates for mayor are trying to make Doug Ford's decision to have the private sector take over the area as uncomfortable as possible. Any feedback you have, we are always happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tejvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone.